Nutrition is based on science. And while the science may not always agree and even change over time, just like all scientific fields of research, without credible research to inform your views, you are really just flying blind in the wind at the mercy of few opinions and what your social media news feed shows you. The base of all scientific research is the communication of it through research papers published in peer-reviewed journals. In this podcast, I'll show you how to delve beyond the title of a research paper and instead apply a critical filter to all parts of the research study. Developing this skill will allow you to form your own view of how much influence to give to a research study rather than be led astray from those seeking to influence you. Welcome to the Thinking Nutrition Podcast. My name is Tim Crow. And I'm a career researcher, educator, and science communicator with most of this spent in the field of nutrition. How do you make sense of so much conflicting information in the field of nutrition? Well, I don't profess to have all the answers in an area that is continually changing as research changes, you can count on what is covered in this podcast to be based on the whole field of nutrition science, not just selective areas that support a particular way of thinking. And this podcast will always be free from any commercial product tie-ins, endorsements, or advertisements. Just credible nutrition science presented in plain and simple language and then translating this in what it means for your health. So, on with today's show. Nutrition can be confusing at times. With a clash of competing voices and conflicting media headlines and a good dash of conflict of interest, how can you forge your own path in determining where the truth, or perhaps that should be the view closest to the truth today, lies? If there is one skill that would assist you in doing this above all others, it would be the ability to critically read and interpret a scientific study. Being critical here, though, means to question the information to evaluate the worth of it. It is not the same as being negative and finding flaws in the study because you don't like the message. To understand a study, as well as how it relates to previous research on the topic, you need to read more than just the title. So what I aim to do today is to draw on my 30 years of experience of direct involvement in scientific research to give you a guide for how to go about reading and critically appraising a scientific paper. So you've come across an article reporting on a scientific study and you've managed to track down a copy of that paper from the journal website. Well, firstly, well done. That can be a feat in itself. And spoiler alert here, for next week's podcast, I'll outline how to keep up with research and where are the best sources to do this. So what comes next? It is page one of the paper, that being the abstract and introduction. The abstract is a short summary that covers the main points of a study and should reflect the title of the paper. A good abstract will be clear and informative and reflect the content of the paper. With only a few paragraphs to do this, sometimes an abstract can be unintentionally misleading, either by omitting certain key findings or only focusing on certain areas of the research. So treat the abstract then 
as a guide to what you would expect to read when you delve into the paper in greater depth. Before citing a study as evidence, make sure to read the whole thing, because it might turn out to be weak evidence. Reading titles and abstracts are great to get a feel for a research field, and really no one has the time to read every paper in full they come across, even me, but if you want to cite research as evidence, you need to have a good handle at what is contained in it after the abstract. So after reading the abstract, we have the introduction, which sets the stage for the research study. A good introduction should acknowledge previous literature in terms of arguments for and against what the authors are presenting as their research question. Introductions are also a great place to find additional reading material, since study authors will frequently reference other relevant published studies on the topic. The introduction will also outline what the goals of the research are and why the research question is important. Sometimes a rationale is given that there is a literature gap which the work is attempting to address, but this necessarily isn't a problem, so the work may not be that novel or interesting. The end of the introduction leads into what is unknown and makes it clear why the authors are doing the study, and you will usually find this in the last paragraph of the introduction. Normally, straight after the introduction, we have the methods section. Understanding the methodology is vital for determining the strength of evidence and the validity of the conclusions. And I would argue that understanding the pros and cons of the research design chosen is the single most important part in evaluating a scientific study. For human research, there are two broad types of studies, observational and intervention studies. Observational studies are where people are simply observed over time or data is collected from existing sources. And here, the researchers have no influence on the outcome. For intervention studies, there is some form of external influence that is normally introduced by the researchers and a randomized controlled trial is considered the gold standard. Here's an example. A study where the dietary habits of a large group of people who report having IBS are collected is an example of an observational study. While a study evaluating how those same people fared in terms of their IBS symptoms when on a low FODMAP diet compared to a regular diet is an example of an intervention study. But there is no one perfect study as they each have their own strengths and weaknesses but knowing the merits and shortcomings of each study will go a long way in you being able to evaluate the conclusions of a study. So I'm going to spend a little time talking about these pros and cons. So there are three main types of observational studies, and these are cross-sectional, case control, and cohort studies. Cross-sectional studies are descriptive studies and provide a snapshot of the health or nutritional status of people at one point in time. These studies measure the prevalence, but not the incidence of a factor of interest. So the number of people who have type 2 diabetes in Australia today is an example of cross-sectional prevalence data. How many people develop type 2 diabetes each year is an example of incidence data. So cross-sectional studies are very useful in providing information on the distribution of disease 
or for health planning and resource allocation. Global or country-level national nutrition surveys are examples of cross-sectional studies where you obtain a snapshot of the population's nutritional intake and their status at one particular point of time from a large sample of people. Some of the advantages of cross-sectional studies include that they are comparatively quick, easy and inexpensive to do because you can sample large numbers of people and get lots of data. So large sample sizes is a positive and they're great for surveillance and planning as well as forming hypotheses for future studies. Disadvantages of cross-sectional studies is it's very hard and I would say almost impossible to assess causality because you're measuring an exposure and an outcome at the same time. So this, these sorts of studies can be liable to what's called reverse causality. So did the outcome cause the exposure? And also confounding here can be an issue in interpreting results. Here's an example of what I mean by confounding. So imagine you collect data on sunburns and ice cream consumption. And this is all done at the same time, so it's cross-sectional uh, data. And you find that higher ice cream consumption is associated with a higher probability of a person having sunburn. So does this mean that ice cream or eating ice cream causes sunburn? Well, of course not. Nobody would say that's, that's true. But in this case, you have an association between the two. But of course, what's going on here is that the confounding variable is temperature. So a hot temperature causes people to both eat more ice cream and spend more time in the outdoors under the sun, resulting in more sunburns. And you could even argue that temperature is a confounding variable because temperature is just because it's hot. People can still stay indoors and eat ice cream. So in the end, the thing that's causing this is exposure to ultraviolet light. So using that very basic example, you could see that in more complex studies, if you don't allow for potential confounding variables, or maybe there's confounders that you don't know about, that could skew your results and you get associations that have really no relationship between each other. So observational studies are particularly prone to confounding and cross-sectional studies are probably the worst because you really can't tease apart the exposure and the outcome. In this case, the ice cream consumption and the sunburn. They all happen at the same time. So another observational study design is known as a case control study. This is where you start with the outcome of interest, which is either a case, so someone with a disease like cancer, for example, or a control, which is someone without the disease, and you measure past exposure. So what you are doing is comparing similar groups of people with and without a disease and looking back in time at their diet and lifestyle habits to see what influences these could have had. Some advantages of case control studies include there are much lower cost to do because you only need a small number of subjects because you are dealing with people who have a disease or condition right now. They're very time efficient because you don't need to wait for people to develop a disease. You just uh, you s seek them out and you source them initially to enroll in your study. And they're great for diseases that are quite rare. And they're also, they're very useful as an initial um, study to determine associations between perhaps uh, a disease such as colon cancer and exposure, you know, be it, be it smoking, be it a high-fat diet, be it um, eating lots of red meat, having low amounts of physical activity. So they are only associations that don't prove true causality, but they find links between two factors 
that allow you to do higher quality research to determine if that link is valid. But disadvantages of case control studies is that they are certainly subject to recall bias. So for example, if you ask people today who have cancer what their diet was like in the past, they may give a different view of it that's informed by the perceptions of what actually has caused their cancer. So it's relying upon past recall and it could be influenced by the current state of, of disease or health. It can be very difficult to find a suitable control group. So if you identify cases with a particular disease, you need to ensure you have a control group that is very, very similarly matched to that case group. But the control group, of course, doesn't have the disease. So you have to be very confident your controls are truly very similar. I mean, it's no point doing a case group that are elderly men who have lung cancer and you use a control group that's young females. I mean, that's an extreme example, but you need a very similar type of control group. And again, confounding can be an issue in interpreting results because you may get lots of associations that are just that. Associations are not actually truly related to each other. And the third type of observational study is the cohort study. This is the most powerful type of observational study. Here, you have a group of people called a cohort who are followed over time, and their diet and lifestyle habits are monitored. You then wait for the health outcome of interest to develop, such as cancer, heart disease, and so on. This type of study allows you to compare disease rates in those who are exposed to the factor of interest, such as eating a high-fiber diet, exercising regularly, and so on, and those who are not exposed before the disease outcome of interest develops. Importantly, though, this is still an observational study, so there is no external influence by the researchers in shaping the diet and lifestyle habits of the people. Some of the advantages of cohort studies include that the exposure is measured before the disease develops, so a person's disease status can't affect their exposure measurement, so it minimizes recall bias. And you could also measure many exposures and many outcomes because typically cohort studies involve very large samples of people. And you can measure all sorts of things related to to diet, to exercise, to smoking, and you can look at changes in this over time. So there's lots of analysis you can do. So So from one study, you get lots and lots of research and generate lots of hypotheses and potential links between lifestyle and disease. A disadvantage of a cohort study, or one of the main disadvantages, is that you have to wait for the disease to develop. So you need large sample sizes and long periods of time. So this can make these studies very expensive, because while the study is running, you need to keep track of and monitor all the people. And some of the very large cohort studies can involve hundreds of thousands of people, so they are very expensive. And because you are following people over time, Loss to follow-up is an issue because people drop out, they move address, they lose contact with the researchers. And if you don't allow for these dropouts or these people that are lost to follow-up, that can introduce bias into your study. And because there's no randomization, you're simply observing, again, confounding can be an issue. In fact, a big issue in this if you don't correct for confounding variables. So keep in mind that observational studies cannot show causation, since the scientists conducting the study 
are not controlling any of the variables, but they are very valuable in building a strong case for a link between an exposure, so that could be a form of diet, and an outcome, in this case generally a disease. So that's observational studies. So finally, we have intervention studies. And the gold standard here for a scientific study is a randomized control trial. And the most important concept here is that the exposure is assigned, be it an exercise program, a specific type of diet, or an education program around healthy eating. And if possible, both the participants and the researchers should be blinded to who received the intervention. But this is not always possible. Some of the advantages of intervention studies include you have a better evidence of causality because the exposure precedes the disease and the exposure has been introduced by the researchers. And the only difference between the control and intervention group is the intervention. Because generally in these studies, you are randomizing people who volunteer to go into the study to be allocated to either control group or the intervention group. And when you randomize, you minimize and reduce all of the potential individual biases that can exist between people. So people's genetic background, whether they smoke or not, how much physical activity that they do, what their baseline diet is like. With a large enough group of people, when you randomize them to different groups, generally you wash out all of those inherent differences. So the only really big difference between your groups is the intervention. And if you can see a difference between your groups, you can be reasonably confident that it's the intervention that was the result of that. Whereas observational studies, you can never be that certain because there could be confounding things that have, that have caused the association or there could be things that you don't even know about, you couldn't even adjust for that explain the association that you've seen. So these types of randomized controlled trials are really powerful. But there are, there are disadvantages, there are downsides. They can be very expensive and often very difficult to conduct because you need to control for so many different things. There's also the potential for volunteer bias, meaning that more motivated people will take part in the study. So then it may not be always truly representative of the general population. And compliance and loss to follow-up is a big issue because if you're asking people to make changes to their diet and to their lifestyle, that's all well and good when there is ongoing help and support from the research team, but people are human beings. And over time, they may not fully comply with what the intervention is about. And you need to monitor that and you need to allow for it. Uh, and also, it's not always possible to conceal uh, what group a person has been randomized to. If your study is looking at the effect of a Mediterranean-style diet compared to a traditional Western diet, you really can't blind that. People will know if they've been eating a Mediterranean-type diet you know, every day for months and months. You, know, you can't really hide that. Whereas if your trial is about putting, uh, giving a supplement, it's much easier to blind that because you can give a placebo supplement in a pill an active ingredient in another pill, and people won't know which pill they've been given. But when it's whole dietary changes, it is much harder to actually blind that. So you need to take that into account when you're analyzing the results. So in terms of the strength of conclusions you can make about an area, no one single study is ever definitive. But as you move up the evidence tree, starting at case studies, then cross-sectional studies, then on to case control studies 
and observational studies, and finally to randomized controlled trials, the evidence grows until you can combine it together in a systematic review and meta-analysis. These are the types of studies you would have heard me refer to a lot in my previous podcasts when I provide supporting evidence. You can put a case forward for any nutrient causing or preventing any disease you want if you selectively cherry pick a single study from the research literature. What matters most is what the field narrative of research tells you, and here it is systematic reviews that reveal a much truer picture. The area of study design can be complex, but there is an excellent online tutorial that I'll link to in the show notes that gives you a short overview of each type of study and how they are ranked in the levels of evidence and go on to inform scientific views. It is well worth doing this tutorial if you're serious about getting your critical analysis skills up to speed. So also in the methods section of a paper, For studies involving humans, you'll find demographic information like age, sex, and lifestyles of the participants, how they were recruited, and details about the intervention itself. This is all very relevant to know as it affects how you can apply the results of the study to a greater context. For example, if a study only recruits postmenopausal women for a supplement trial to improve bone health, then the results will have little relevance for males or for adolescent females. And also note the inclusion and exclusion criteria in the methods for how people were recruited, as this will always be given in the methods. It is important to know this for the applicability and the generalizability of the findings. There are several other aspects of the methodology to pay attention to. One is the sample size of the study, which is the number of people who were studied. The larger the sample size in a study, the more reliable the results are. Look for a statement, usually in the statistics section of the methods, that the authors calculated the power of the study. Power gives you a guide to the minimum sample size needed to still give a good chance that statistical significance would be found. There is no magic number for sample size, but the more people in the study, the better. A study can be adequately powered with only 20 participants in it, so the results should be valid, while another study may be underpowered with 800 people in it. If a study is underpowered, it may mean that a study can't answer the research question, and some ethics committees don't allow studies to run unless they are sufficiently powered, or with the exception that it's a pilot study to explore a new research question where we don't know much about the field, so it's not possible to do a power calculation. The methodology section usually concludes with a statistics discussion, and this area is not for the faint-hearted, and unless you have training in statistics, it will likely be undecipherable. Determining whether an appropriate statistical analysis was used is an entire field of study. So, when reading statistics, try to focus on the big picture. Here, take note that if something is statistically significant, it does not mean the same as being important. Statistical significance may still be clinically insignificant, while non-significance may just be a measure of an underpowered study with a small sample size. For example, if researchers find that taking a weight loss supplement helps people lose an extra half a kilogram of weight every year, and the result is statistically significant, 
you probably wouldn't recommend people taking the supplement because its benefit is so small. And it may come with some side effects and also it could be expensive too. So after methods, next comes the main results of the study. And a question to ask yourself here is, do the results relate to the research question? If the study was an intervention study where one group of people received a treatment such as taking a supplement to help with exercise endurance, and this was compared to a control group, look for reporting of intent to treat analysis or a statement of why people were lost or dropped out of the study. Almost every study has participants that don't finish the trial or don't follow the instructions. A lot of dropouts or non-compliant participants should raise red flags, especially if one group of participants was more prone to dropping out. An imbalance in dropouts in one group is a big flag that something is askew with the intervention, and this could bias the results. Another thing to look for are studies that use a whole battery of endpoints or outcomes. If you measure enough things, you probably will find something of interest, and this can get the focus of the study conclusions. That is fine if the key outcomes were what the study was about, but if they were well down the list as secondary measures, then the researchers may just be dressing up their study. In the same vein, take very special note of where there is an over-reliance given to subgroup analysis. This is where researchers slice and dice up their results to look at a narrower snapshot of people, such as in a study involving a broad cross-section of the general population, where it looks at just women, or maybe people over the age of 50, or people who had poor glycemic control at the start of the study. Subgroup analysis can be interesting, and it can be valid to do, but if it wasn't part of the original research design or study aims, you may be seeing researchers data mining, that is, looking for spurious significant results that may have just arisen by chance. Large clinical trials aren't always powered enough to make strong conclusions about subgroups. So it is a red flag for me when a study relies on emphasizing the results of their secondary analysis and subgroups when their primary outcome didn't show much of interest. After the results, finally, we have the discussion and conclusion. Here, you will see the results discussed in relation to the hypothesis. A good discussion will put forward alternative interpretations to the research study findings, rather than just one dogmatic idea. Good discussions will do a lot of the critical analysis work for you and highlight in depth all of the limitations of the study. All research has limitations, and I find that people who loudly call out the limitations of a research study do so because they don't like the findings as they go against their worldview of nutrition. The conclusion is also an appropriate section to discuss potential future studies based on the new results. That being said, researchers also might hypothesize a potential mechanism of action or point out ways future studies could improve on their study design. Research that ends with a statement along the lines of more research is needed is likely a measure of lazy researchers who couldn't think of anything else interesting to write. Okay, harsh I know, but really, of course, more research is always needed. Time to be a bit more original in your conclusion. And finally, look to see who funded the research and are conflicts of interest declared. 
Look, it's worth taking note of this, but it never, ever, ever should be used to invalidate research simply because of conflict of interests or the funding body. Researchers are not lining up to be paid off by industry so they can produce fraudulent research in the pursuit of upgrading to a bigger yacht. There are very, very few bad apples in the research community. Most researchers are good people who want to do good work regardless of who funds it. But they also have the reality of needing research grants to develop their research program. So it could be that research that attracts industry funding is already helping to confirm prior positive work in the field. So the outcome is already pretty well assured. It also could be that a study is designed to report a positive outcome by using a battery of outcomes, where if any single one lights up as positive, it gets the focus of the study conclusion. Or maybe only positive research is allowed to be published, and such industry funding contracts do exist. They are ones I would never ever sign, but some researchers may. It doesn't stop at the influence of industry funding though. Researchers tied to a narrative with their research program and maybe a large social media following and the odd best-selling diet book on Amazon or two may find it difficult to do an about-face when conflicting evidence presents itself. As humans, we are all susceptible to this. The scientific method helps to reduce it, but it cannot eliminate it entirely. Okay, time to finish up. That is a lot of things for you to consider when evaluating a study. Adding it all together allows you to form your own view of how solid the research findings are. And if you want to go a little deeper into it, the people over at examine.com have put together a very detailed and accessible guide on how to read a scientific study, which I'll link to in the show notes. So that's it for today's show. You can find the show notes either in the app you're listening to this podcast on if it supports it, or else head over to my webpage at thinkingnutrition.com.au and click on the podcast section to find this episode to read the show notes. If you find this podcast of value, then please consider sharing it with your friends and colleagues, or maybe even leave a review. This all helps increase the ranking and reach of the podcast, which means a big win for credible evidence-based nutrition messages while helping to delete out the crazy and making the world a slightly less confusing place. I'm Tim Crow, and you've been listening to Thinking Nutrition. Thinking Nutrition.